Now, um, the way we've sort of done uh, Daniel is basically do a chapter a week, but I must have done it in a hurry because I forgot that at the end of chapter 9 there are four verses which are deemed probably the most contentious or the most kind of difficult to understand in the entire Bible. David Pawson's comment, much ink has been spent on conjecture about its meaning, pet theories abound. There are four basic theories and within each one of those theories the person has to work out the answer to half a dozen questions. So you can imagine the variants are now clocking up well into kind of 25, 30 or so and it did my head in. And then I read this in one commentary, um, is your head swimming yet? And the answer was yes. And uh, I decided that um, quite honestly you'd need to have a whole Lent series to kind of do it thoroughly, do it justice. So we'll just stick to um, Daniel as a model of somebody who prays this evening. It's a lot easier to understand and um, actually arguably of greater benefit to us because we all need to pray and really all we need to know about the end of the world is that Christ will return, it will be fine for us. So... um, This evening we're looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 23. And we have here a very good example, one of the best in the Bible, of how somebody who is a man of God with a high level of integrity prays, how he intercedes. And there are many lessons which we as Christian disciples need to learn. So we need to interact with Daniel and then we need to internalise the lessons that we pick up. So we want to learn to pray from somebody who knows prayer and who does pray and whose God answers his prayers. And Daniel is a fine mentor. After all, he was punished for praying and yet he persisted. He's thrown in the lion's den and he comes out alive. So we begin in the year 539 BC, which is Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, who is also called Cyrus, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So prior to this, Daniel has been reading and pondering the scriptures. In this case, the prophecy of Jeremiah, who had prophesied 66 years previously in 605 BC. And that was exactly the same year that Daniel, as a talented teenager, with his peers, was taken off by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar had first defeated the Assyrians in 609 and then in 605 at the Battle of Carchemish, the Egyptians. So the Babylonians are now, Babylonians are now top dog. And Jeremiah wrote this, you'd find it in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, if you want to. This whole country, that's Judah and Jerusalem, will become a desolate wasteland 
and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nations, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. God does cause the rise and fall of nations and he causes some nations to rise who are probably pretty unpleasant but they're not quite as unpleasant as the ones God uses them to topple. And he, but like all nations, their leaders get far too big for their boots and they try to usurp the place of God and he doesn't tolerate that and they then get, they then fall. So what Daniel realises in 539 is that what he heard Jeremiah say and what was interestingly written down so it can be called the scriptures the written things he recalls ah God said this exile that I've spent almost 70 years in is time limited it's going to come to an end so he gets praying that that might actually come about Yep, I know I can do the math, 605 to about 537 is 68 years, not 70, but I think we're talking round figures here. That's how I think is best to understand these things. And what we find Daniel starts off doing is confessing Israel's sins, because Daniel believes God's promises expressed through Jeremiah for a return he believes that, and so he begins to pray earnestly that uh, God would forgive the people their sin and enable this restoration and return from exile to take place. Now, I suppose Daniel could have been a fatalist and just thought, oh, I'll just leave it all to God to bring about. After all, he said he's going to do that. But instead, he knows that he should actually pray intercede and plead with God on the basis of God's character that God will keep his promise and that's what he does so I turned verse 3 says to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes and I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed so Daniel turned as it has in the NIV or turned my face in the ESV or in the old authorised version set my face that's a Hebrew idiom implying a deliberate determination towards something and that Hebrew idiom we, we read in the New Testament used by Luke when he records that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem where he had to suffer, die and be resurrected in fact Jesus himself says it is necessary the Son of Man must, absolute kind of dominant thought of Jesus, and this is a, is a way in which Daniel, this is expressing his dominant thought in prayer. So for him, this was no rather casual thing, but a firm heart's resolve to seek God for his people until the answer came. He is serious, and it's expressed in the phrase, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now fasting is a way in which we could express, it's obvious I don't do much of that, but um, uh, to humble oneself to God. But on the occasions I have, 
it does concentrate the mind, particularly if you're quietly doing it with other people for a particular cause for a particular time. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning, and ashes symbolised the penitence with which Daniel came to represent his people before the Lord. And several words are used here to describe prayer. He pleaded. In other words, he's incredibly seriously minded. He's seeking something that he knows God has promised. Then we have the phrase prayer and petition. The word for prayer is the most common one used in the Old Testament. And petition is kind of supplication. It's a verb which depicts Daniel's desire that he wants God to grant his people mercy. And this is then, he is behaving like, I guess, his role model, the prophet Jeremiah, who has written the book of Lamentations. And even within the book of Jeremiah, there are laments where he is pleading on behalf of his people to God. Now in the phrase in fasting in sackcloth and ashes, that just depicts how Daniel, before his Lord, is both deliberate and humble. He doesn't come to God with a boldness to plead for something to happen because he can see that it's a righteous cause. He knows that God owes his people nothing. So Daniel approaches God asking for mercy for a clearly sinful people, and so he comes humbly. Now the passage indicates that he takes two actions. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed. Well, we've covered praying. He confessed. The primary meaning of that word is to acknowledge or confess sin. It's used of King David in Psalm 32 of his personal confession. It's used in Leviticus on the Day of the Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest on behalf of the people would confess the nation's sins and make sacrifice. And it's used a little bit later with the other great confessions of Israel's sin, which you can read about in the book of Ezra and in Nehemiah who were about a hundred years after Daniel was around. So we move on to the content of Daniel's confession. You notice how the Lord's Prayer kicks off with a recognition of God's greatness and holiness. We pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, Daniel begins in the same way, in the same kind of acknowledgement of God's greatness and his mercy. Verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. So first of all, he acknowledges his God, Yahweh, the great and awesome God. And next he acknowledges Yahweh's reputation and character, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Now a covenant in that particular time 
was usually between two nations, usually between basically the victor in a battle and the loser, the vassal. And God borrows from that ancient Near Eastern sort of treaty. Um, He borrows from that and he uses it as the basis for his agreement, his covenant with Israel, which he made around 1350 BC on Mount Sinai, which was accompanied by various uh, signs, by sacrifices and by a solemn oath which sealed the relationship with, on the one hand, promises of blessing for keeping the covenant and curses for breaking it. And with this, uh, we have here covenant of love, or as the ESV says, the covenant and steadfast love. And you notice that Daniel is quite aware that the people of Israel don't qualify for relief under the covenant since it's a covenant with all who love him and obey his commands. And the Israelites had not kept God's commands, but had broken them and committed treason by worshipping other gods. Instead, the blessings of the covenant, they have, uh, instead of the blessings of the covenant, the people of God have faced the curses of the covenant. And Daniel acknowledges that very clearly. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now Daniel uses all these synonyms for sin to make it really clear that he isn't trying to get to extract from God his mercy by um, some kind of special pleading to excuse themselves of sins. No, he is quite straightforward. He could not be clearer and stronger. And he says, we have sinned. Nor does he hide behind the we didn't know it was wrong kind of defence either. He's not trying to wriggle out of things. He acknowledges that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. God isn't at fault for the, uh, the fate of the Israelites. No, he sent the prophets to warn them, but they didn't listen. Instead, they killed the messengers of God's merciful warning. So confession, we learn from Daniel, of our sins must be with God, Open, complete, brutally honest, without prevarication, without trying to kind of claim extenuating circumstances or list a bucket load of excuses. No, that's not how he approaches God. That's not how we do either. If you're a parent, have you ever confronted your child with something that you knew they had done wrong and then you've waited for him and her to own up to it. Sometimes you'll hear a full admission but often you will hear lies and excuses. Not until the child is truly sorry will he or she fully confess with repentance and grief. 
But anything less is unacceptable to a parent who is intent on shaping a child's conscience and character. So why should we expect God to be less discerning than we are? If you're a child, on the other hand, rather than a parent, it is never right nor good to lie because it hardens your conscience and you'll lie about something even more serious next time. And it does corrupt your character, which is more visible than you might think. If people know you lie, they will never trust you. Well, Daniel confesses, uh, he identifies with the nation's sin. He doesn't say they sinned, or 70 years ago, some wicked people sinned when I was a teenager. Instead, he says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. Daniel sees himself as a member of this rebellious, sinful nature, nation. And he took a sense of that sin upon himself. He was a very righteous man who, everything we read about him indicates that um, he lived his life without compromise. I'm sure he committed individual personal sins, but by any account he would be classified as a righteous man. In fact, he is placed by God alongside Noah and Job in the book of Ezekiel. And yet he prays, we have sinned. Daniel is part of a sinful nature in the same way that a member of the human race bears guilt because of Adam's sin. Now isn't some, this isn't some kind of legal fiction. His intercession is quite costly for him. He is by this stage between about 80 and 85 and he fasts, wears sackcloth, sprinkles ashes. But it's not external. He does actually feel the grief and he is overwhelmed with the burden and he is humbled before God. He, a righteous man, takes ownership, in a sense, for the sins of others so that he can intercede on their behalf. And in some way, he is a Christ figure. Daniel, in his own person, fulfills for Israel the condition and the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14, that if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, I, then, I will, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now how do we pray for forgiveness and restoration for our church, which is the Church of England? Because it has, in part at least, departed from true doctrine to false. Maybe not officially, fortunately, but actually by too many members and often by those in positions of seniority. And it has departed from healthy, wholesome, honest behaviour for traits which only cause harm and grief to self and others and displeasure 
in the eyes of God. So how do we pray? You know, we might be on the right side. We might be on God's side, though we might not always do it for the right attitude. But we have to own some of the sin. We may not have spoken up. We may not have been given as good an example as we could have done. So, like Daniel, we have to personally and painfully enter into interceding for our church. In verses 7 to 11, we continue considering Daniel's prayer of confession. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and the sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. So Daniel contrasts God's righteousness on the one hand with Israel's shame on the other. Shame's a word that uh, means to fall into disgrace and it's normally through failure either of oneself or of an object of trust and it contains nuances, so my dictionary tells me, of confusion, disillusionment, humiliation and brokenness. And Daniel acknowledges that God has righteously scattered the peoples among the nations due to their unfaithfulness, by which he means a conscious act of treachery. But note in verse 9, there is a hint of mercy. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. God's character of mercy doesn't change even though his children rebel against him. And Daniel's prayer continues, noting that the justice of God's punishment, verse 11, therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us a great disaster, under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. It's been flattened, by the way, 70 years or so before. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. So three times in that little passage, in verses 12, 13 and 14, Daniel speaks of disaster or calamity, referring to the utter destruction of the nation of Judah and of Jerusalem, its capital city, and the scattering of the people 
he's referring to the curses that God promised to send upon his people if they didn't remain faithful. They're littered throughout Leviticus, Exodus and Deuteronomy. And verse 13 here is very interesting. All this disaster has come upon us, yet we've not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. So he sought the favour, which means to mollify or pacify or appease or induce God to show favour in place of wrath and chastisement. What the nation has failed to do, because they haven't turned back to him yet, Daniel does for the nations. He's not a high priest, he's not a king, he's just, um, he's just a lay person. No, I shouldn't say just a lay person, should I? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, well, um, I obviously don't. We're all priests, right? Okay. Um, and, um, but he isn't a high priest, and he isn't a king. They're the kind of people who normally do stuff on behalf of the people in the Old Testament. He, like them, is a lay person. Okay, he's a prophet. Um, and he served for many years as a high official in the government of the people who were Israel's oppressor. And yet he takes on praying for his people who've got themselves into this fix. He's not been officially designated to the task. You don't have to be officially designated. What has happened is that God has laid a burden of prayer on him. And... Uh, God is the one who answers the spirit-inspired prayers of faithful intercessors like Daniel. I expect that others beside him were feeling in the need for confession and repentance at this time. Before the exile, love of their God, Yahweh, was rare. But during the exile, as time went on, God brought about a renewal of faith. The Jews in Babylon without their temple, were they going to meet? So they started meeting in what they called synagogues, they, which means meeting with one another. And there they started studying the scriptures. And the whole scribal movement of which people like Ezra are an example, they managed to sort of draw the scriptures together that had been written before, or in some cases they wrote them down then, so that the people could read them and be guided by them. And so Having done that in exile, when they went back to Jerusalem, they took the scriptures with them and they started to try and live by them. And the whole experience was a kind of sifting because the ones who loved the Lord the most wanted to return the most. Those who'd kind of assimilated to Babylonian life, well, they weren't so keen and they stayed there. Now, having acknowledged Israel's sins and God's just punishment, Daniel makes his appeal. So let's have a look at it and see how we can learn to pray prayers that God answers. Verse 15. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of uh, Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill, 
Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. So Daniel appeals to God on the basis of a number of factors. God's precedent, for example. He's saying God delivered Israel from Egypt, provides a precedent for delivering them from Babylon. On neither occasions were they delivered for their own righteousness. Then there's God's glory. Just as God's glory was known through the deliverance of the people from Egypt, so the deliverance from Babylon will bring God glory. Then there's God's righteousness. Deliverance of God's people shows God's righteousness as an act of mercy. And then there's God's personal identification with Jerusalem. God has identified himself with Jerusalem, the city of God, your city, he says, and the temple mount, your holy hill. Now, while Israel's sins have brought scorn to Jerusalem and Israel, and to God by association, he's saying deliverance will ease that scorn. And he continues, verse 17, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant, for your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because, you are, because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. So he extends his argument further for God to show mercy. God, in showing mercy will find that the temple, which has been a desolate sanctuary, empty, will become rebuilt and filled with worshippers again. And notice Daniel specifically says that this is for your sake. I mean, he's pointing out things to God, which of course God knows, but he's engaging with God here. God's personal identification is with Jerusalem and he reminds him that the city bears his name. And then we have God's mercy again. Daniel's appeal is not on the basis of Israel's righteousness, which has been destroyed by sin and rebellion. He appeals solely on the basis of God's known character and mercy. And he concludes with what might seem a rather impertinent call to action, as if to hurry God. O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, hear and act for your sake, O oh my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So he's urgent and he's impassioned, but God honours Daniel's intercession for his people. God did hear and answer Daniel's prayers both through a personal messenger, the angel Gabriel, and through the historic events which very soon after this prayer unfolded. They came to be. Now Daniel, of course, was, uh, as I said, about 85. We don't know if he ever returned to Jerusalem. It's probably unlikely. We may well have heard about it if he had. But others did. Ezra did. Nehemiah did. And Ezra records the amazing decree that Cyrus the Persian uh, made so that the Israelites could be freed and go back to Jerusalem. 
because these new Persian rulers wanted the prayers of their conquered people. And so, God used them to cooperate with him and them in the return and the rebuilding process. So then we have, as we end, the angel Gabriel appearing to Daniel, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. So that's about three o'clock in the afternoon. The bringer of this vision, the angel Gabriel, we saw last time, he also appears in the New Testament to Zechariah and to Mary. And the vision which comes, which we're not looking at this evening, came in direct response to Daniel's intercessory prayer for the return of God's people to their homeland in Jerusalem. The vision that follows confirms to Daniel that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but then reveals that the return to the Holy Land and rebuilding the temple at Jerusalem is not, in fact, the climax of biblical history. Much more is yet to come. So some things to take away. To show how scripture is related to prayer, what the prophet Jeremiah said in 605 was recognised by his contemporary Daniel almost 70 years later as God's word, as scripture. And Daniel recognised that what Jeremiah had been prompted to say, God said. And what God said happened. On the basis of what God had promised, that the exile would last around 70 years, and on the character of God revealed in his dealings with his people and recorded in scripture, Daniel pleaded with God to end the exile and allow his people to return to him in Jerusalem. Now, Daniel wasn't bending God's ear as if God wouldn't have done it otherwise. Gabriel says, God's reply was given immediately. Daniel started to pray, not after he'd finished. God knew what he was going to pray, and God was going to deliver that anyway. So you may well ask, why on earth is Daniel praying if God is going to do it anyway? And the answer to that is without Daniel engaging in prayer, he, would not, he wouldn't have been in a position to be able to hear, respond, and to become involved in God's grand plans. So in Scripture, God reveals himself and speaks to us. And in prayer, we respond and become involved with God in bringing about his plans and purposes. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that we might learn from this outstanding example as a, of, a, of a believer. You know, he ranks with people like Joseph in the Old Testament, who similarly lived in an alien land where there were few others of like mind. And uh, we thank you for his example, and we thank you for the way in which uh, one prophet recognises another prophet's word from God. And that inspires him to pray, not that he's going to change your mind, but simply that he can engage with you and your plans and purposes to be fulfilled. But what you have clearly promised, you will deliver on, and we can pray for that to occur, whether in our lifetime or in the future. Amen.